Amen. Um, I will try to remember to point it out at the end of the sermon, but we have uh, many pocket Testament leagues, the Gospel of John, out front. I would encourage you to get one, two, a few of those. Keep them with yourself in order that you could share the Gospel with others as you're sharing your faith. You can put the Word of God right in their hand and uh, feed them in that way. So pick one of those up and we'll hopefully talk more about that by the time we get to the end of this message. Matthew chapter 27. We're actually at the crucifixion at this point. And I just want to clarify a number of things as we move through this. And we'll see Jesus Christ's resurrection. But putting it in context here, it says, Now when evening had come. That's Matthew chapter 27 at verse 57. There is a misunderstanding in Christianity regarding Good Friday and the traditions of the church uh, around Easter. You know, we get all of these things mixed up and mingled together. Um, bunny rabbits, Easter eggs, that whole realm of things, we kind of smirk and think of it as cute. It's actually very perverted, just so that you know. Uh, it came from the worship of sex. Uh, rabbits reproduced very rapidly. They became a symbol of the worship of Ishtar. You might hear Easter in that. Uh, all of that ancient world worship and the pagan idolatry that was involved, that's why eggs are involved in it, symbol of fertility in it. Uh, this whole idea came from a very pagan sense of things. Uh, 350 AD, Constantine supposedly has this vision. Roman emperor converts all of Rome to being a Christian state, makes it that that is the state-mandated religion. And all of the pagan forms of worship they had previously, he just tells those pagan priests, you're now Christian priests and convert all of your holidays and all of your gods and all of your idols over to being Christian things. And so that's actually where... You know, the worship of Mary came from, and the prayer to the saints came from, and Christmas has its perversion, and Easter has its perversion. And you know what? If you're going home to have an Easter egg hunt, good for you. Really, no big deal. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just as long as you understand, this is about worshiping the resurrection, or, or, or Jesus Christ, in the resurrection. Okay? Uh, good Friday. Uh, the, the the problem with some of these traditions is we then try to warp Christianity to make it fit traditions. Okay, uh, Good Friday. Uh, the church misunderstanding the scripture because those early priests weren't Christian at all, read the scripture, misunderstood it, and tried to make, okay, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, because the Lord was taken off the cross and the day before the Sabbath, they go, well, that has to be Friday because the Sabbath is Saturday. Therefore, you know, we're going to have to adjust what Jesus meant by three days and three nights. You know, so they buried him in the evening. That's part of one day. So we'll call that day one. Right. And then day two. And then they mix everything all up from there. Look at some things with me. John chapter 19, verse 31 says, Therefore, <clears throat> because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. This is where they get the misunderstanding from. For that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, meaning the men who were hanging on the cross, including Jesus and that they might be taken away, you know, break their legs, hasten their death, and thereby be able to take their bodies off the crosses before the Sabbath. Notice in that verse, it says, for that Sabbath was a high day, okay? Meaning, it wasn't a, a typical Sabbath. It wasn't just another Saturday <clears throat> that was being referred to. It was Passover that they were referring to not just Saturday. 
I got to slow down. I'm breathing in too fast. Now I'll end up choking and dying. Right in front of you. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 26, looking at verse 17, says, Now on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man, meaning a particular person that he gave them directions to, uh, say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. That's the Last Supper. The Passover was occurring the next day. They arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. They go through the process of crucifying him. And the Passover worship was what they were focusing on as the Sabbath that was taking place. These holy days of a week-long celebration, okay? So when we hear that Jesus rose on the first day of the week, meaning Sunday, it was three days and three nights from there. So if you work backwards, right, when they come to the tomb on Sunday morning, Jesus is already gone from the tomb. He's already left. So if you work backwards from there, Saturday night, Saturday one day, one night, Friday night, Friday, two days, two nights, Thursday night, Thursday, three days, three nights. So really it was probably good Wednesday. If you, if you want to calculate these things accordingly, <clears throat> a bunch of people get all crazy about le being legalistic with, okay, no, it was actually Thursday and they do all these crazy calculations. Fine. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was good Thursday. That's not what I'm trying to focus you on, right? I'm not here this morning saying, okay, we're going to be like the most vigilant church, the most studied church, and I want you to leave here with a chip on your shoulder and just go attack everybody that, you know, went to church on Good Friday, which is what some people do with this whole thing, right? You know, if you've got a Christmas tree in your house, they show up with a chainsaw and, you know, go to town about how you're not a Christian, real Christians don't have Christmas trees. No, you know, they, they get crazy with their legalism and, and with their self-righteous indignation. The point I'm making is there are people who hear, oh, three days, three nights in you know, the grave, and then somebody says, well, Jesus died on Friday, and then they get going in their head. Now, wait a minute, three days, three nights, Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, he's resurrected. That's not three days, three nights. So then they throw out the message of our Lord. We want to be careful <clears throat> and share with people the truth of God's word. But, you know, going too far and being legalistic is, you know, just the pendulum swinging back the other direction. The, the, the greatest point in all of this is God's word is trustworthy and this message is true. This isn't a Bible story. This is a historic account of our Lord becoming a man, dying on a cross, being buried, and being resurrected three days later. Amen? Amen. So, <clears throat> 27, verse 57, again, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, remember that name, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. Parallel passage, John chapter 19, verses 38 and 39. Say, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, so this is just John's account of the same thing we just read in Matthew, John 19, verses 38 and 39. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, remembering John chapter 3 and the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus about being born again, 
So he first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Very costly process both of these men are engaged in. Now, we've recently talked about the Lord saying that it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Easier to put a camel through the eye of a sewing needle then for a rich man to enter the heaven, the disciples say, well, then it's impossible. And the Lord says, with man, this is impossible. All things are possible with the Lord. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were incredibly wealthy men. We know that from the scripture, this passage that's referencing right here, and also from Jewish historians who knew of them and their work within Jerusalem. In particular, it is recorded that when uh, Nicodemus's daughter was married, that the city of Jerusalem had never experienced a celebration of that magnitude, not for the inauguration of kings, not for any celebration that had taken place nationally. Apparently, what Nicodemus did in the city to celebrate his, his daughter's wedding was uh, beyond anything any anyone could remember. So incredible wealth involved with the burial of our Lord. Back in Matthew chapter 27, looking at verse 59, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. Wealthy man preparing uh, for the day where he's going to pass away in his own burial, lays Jesus to rest there. Isaiah, the prophet, had said hundreds of years previously, Isaiah chapter 53, 9, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. A prediction of how Jesus was going to be buried, and with whom? Keeping in mind, right, here's Joseph of Arimathea, and we might think of him as being a righteous man, right, because of what he's doing here, and the scripture records him as being a wicked man, meaning, right, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea are <clears throat> not given sainthood, salvation, however you want to look at it, because of their good deeds. They themselves also are saved by the grace of God. The man they're burying, his shed blood saved them also. Right? Keep that in mind, right? Because we, we often go about our good deeds and our behavior thinking, well, there, now the Lord will accept me. You know, or at least erase, you know, today's debts. You know, the things I've done wrong. This will offset the scale. <laughs> you know, I was yelling at my wife when I left the house, but now that I'm changing this guy's tire, yeah. consider it's, it's Christ's shed blood that sanctifies us, purifies us, cleanses, justifies us. Not, not our good deeds. Do your good deeds, please, right? Faith without works is dead. But we should never deceive ourselves into thinking that somehow what we're doing is giving us access to God's glory. Uh, continuing there in verse 60, uh, Matthew chapter 27, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Now, we know from other gospel accounts that the stone was so large that no one man would be able to roll it into place. It would take several men to roll it out of its place. Here, Joseph of Arimathea is a wealthy man, so we can assume safely that he has people working for him and working with him. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, maybe a couple other helpers, they roll the stone into place. It's significant because when the women come, they're asking themselves, how in the world are we going to get that rock out of the way? Right? They are witness to the rock being put in place, which will Examine here, in verse 61, Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb when that stone 
was rolled in place. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, um, notice the insincerity, right? If, if they had the opportunity, they would stab this guy right in the back. Uh, the Jews hated the Romans and hated the Roman rulers even more. So they come with this feigned respect. Sir, we remember. I underlined that in my Bible. Because here they are making the admission that they remember what they're about to record while he was still alive. How that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. They remember it. They are witness to what Jesus said in ministry. So interesting that the apostles don't remember this. But the enemies of Christ do, and they're making preparations for it. How strange is that? They're making preparations for it. For it. Therefore, verse 64, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Okay. Nicodemus, who was with Joseph of Arimathea, as we just talked about, was one of the Jewish leaders. Read John chapter 3 again and see it recorded there that a ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus, came to speak to Jesus by night. Nicodemus says there in John chapter 3, good teacher, we, we know that you are sent from God. No man could do the miracles that you were doing unless he had been sent from God. Nicodemus is making the confession for this group of religious leaders that they know he's sent from God. Their wickedness is that profound. Listen, I want to caution you against many of the false teachers you see on television, right? Maybe you're sharp enough to recognize this guy isn't teaching things that line up with the scripture. Other times you might be watching them and thinking, well, I'm not so entirely sure they're completely wrong or they're off base or whatever. Guaranteed, those people who are enriching themselves through the gospel, making themselves incredibly wealthy, just like these false teachers know that what they're doing is wrong. You can see it written on their face, written their behavior. If that doesn't convince you, watch them squirm in their interviews. Right When Larry King was alive and interviewing them, and they are working their way around every question that they're asked. When, when someone has them on their talk show and they are just flailing for all they're worth, to try and answer the question another way, right? When Jesus said on the Mount of Olives, or excuse me, on the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no, that's what you're looking for in those circumstances. One of God's children, a minister of the gospel, being asked a question, and when the answer comes forthright, straight back, that's, that's what you're looking for. When you, when you walk away feeling like, I feel like I'm listening to a politician, right? What's that old thing? You can always tell when a politician is lying. Their lips are moving. Exactly right. <clears throat> so it is, right? With the false teachers. They know. Here we're hearing the confessions. They know of Jesus' resurrection. And they're preparing already to combat that. They have themselves aligned with how they might destroy that work. So Pilate said to them in verse 65, <clears throat> you have a guard, not not implying use your own people. He's saying, I grant you permission to use a Roman guard, meaning that he's going to send a contingent 
of Roman guards with them who will guard this tomb. When Roman guards, they were hired in this way for many different reasons. If there was a certain level of insurrection happening around Jewish settlements or religious locations, the Romans would set guards in those places in order to protect the peace of the community. They, do, they don't want there to be melee and fighting and warfare and theft and death. They, they control order. Think of when Paul went in to preach at the temple and the whole city blows up, right? And, and the Romans come out of the garrison and they go and collect. Paul, they literally carry him overhead to transport him back to the Antonio Fortress and put him under guard. The Roman guards commonly got involved in civilian affairs in order to protect the peace. So when Pilate here says, you have a Roman guard, he's saying, I give you authority to use Roman soldiers to protect the tomb of Jesus Christ. That puts all of Rome's weight behind protecting this tomb it, it isn't just a matter of uh we got you know this uh rent a soldier agency over here where they don't even really carry swords you know they've they've got roman breastplates but it's it's really just plastic you know they don't they're not real soldiers no these are the real deal military guard that means if someone tries to come to the tomb they're going to be met with the violence of Roman military. You don't, you don't get to overpower them. You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure. And here is significance. Sealing the stone and setting the guard. That means they came there. They literally militarily assessed the situation. Set up a perimeter and then put a Roman wax seal on the tomb. Meaning, if that seal is broken, and anybody interferes with that tomb, then they're going to pay the full weight from the Roman guards that are present to guard it, under pain of death. If, if those Roman guards fail at their job, they will be put to death for the failure of their job. So, uh this uh, next section that we're about to get to, remember verse 66, we'll see how some things unfold in verses 11 through 15 of Matthew chapter 28. Beginning at verse 1, now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn. So there we have the actual description of Sunday. Saturday has passed. We're now into Sunday morning, right? Uh, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who had been at the tomb and seen Joseph of Arimathea shut the tomb with the stone, came to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. I, I like that whole depiction because to me it's as though God and the angel sort of have a chip on their shoulder, you know. So you've put a Roman guard in place. So you've set a Roman seal on the tomb. So, uh, you know, push that out of the way and then sit down on it. You, know, I, you can probably illustrate that however you want to, but just the idea of, this is what I think of your authority. I'm going to shove it out of the way, and I'm going to make it my footstool. I'm going to make it my lounge chair. I'm just going to, you know, laze around on top of the stone. What, you get something to say? Just, you know, took a group of people to put this stone here. Let me just roll this out of the way. God and his authority. You know, throughout the scripture we see this. We get the impression from especially people that want to you know, create frightening imagery that the devil is so powerful that you know, if you were to pit 
you know, the devil against Jesus or, you know, the devil against God, however they depict it, that, oh, it was a close battle. God won in the end, but, boy, it was frightening there for a little while. Okay. When we come to the end of all things in the book of Revelation and it's time for Satan to be captured and put into hell, they send one angel. That's it. There, there isn't a massive army. They don't have to wade through hordes of demons and battle through fire and blood to get to where they, you know, eventually subdue him and, you know, put him in chains and drag him off, kicking him. One angel goes, arrests Satan, puts him in chains, and throws him into hell. Simple as that. Right now, what's going on is God's allowance. He has taken his hand off because God created this earth and humanity and gave humanity authority over this earth, and humanity relinquished control through their choices to Lucifer by obeying him. As God said, you shall not eat of the tree. Go ahead and eat of the tree. You'll not die, and she eats of the tree. She obeys the suggestions, and thereby we come under the authority. God is still in control, but he's allowing these things to happen. Here, the angel just sits down on the stone and waits. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. Now, I've done it a couple of different times over the years here when we come to Resurrection Sunday, where I make the presentation beginning at the burial of Jesus Christ, and I go in order through each of the occasions that occur from his death burial, resurrection, and then ascension into heaven from all of the different Gospels. There are massive differences at times between one Gospel account and the next. The critics review that and say, see, therefore, we can't believe the Scripture because of the differences that are here. And I have um, few friends that are in law enforcement and whenever they have to question people about circumstances that have unfolded, when they talk to them and their stories are all the same, they automatically assume these people have worked together, developed a story, rehearsed that story in its retelling, and are now reciting to us what they've memorized as their story regarding the circumstances. If everybody's story is the same, then they know this is fabricated. It's the differences that convince them that this is a real account of what took place. When one person is saying, there was one person there when this all unfolded, and the next person is saying, there were two people there, they don't go, oh, I can't trust either one of these. They assume this person saw one person and this person was in a position to see two different people. It's, it's the differences that end up being the confirmation. You can go through the Gospels as I have done and put everything in order and the differences corroborate the story. They don't renounce the story. They don't dismantle the story. It's an affirmation that the story is real that this actually took place. Here, one angel speaking to them who's seated on the stone. Other accounts, as we're going to see some of the circumstances, two of them, two of them inside the tomb. There are differences in the circumstance. Don't be confused or dismayed by them. They are a confirmation of what we're reading instead. Clothing, like lightning, white as snow, the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men, which seems to be an indication that maybe these women were actually witness to some of that transpiring, that they were aware of these guards shaking and trembling. The angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place 
where the Lord lay, which is an indication that they probably at that point ushered them in to show them the body. So when we see the differences of, wait a minute, there was an angel outside, and now another account is telling us that there were two angels inside. Part of how we get that is these women leave and go tell Peter and John, and once they hear it, they come back to the experience these things. So the timing of who saw what when probably has a lot to do with the differences of what's going on in the recounting of these things. Another element within this is they didn't sit down all at one time and say, you know what, guys, we need to write the Gospels. Who's up for that? Oh, okay, I'll write Mark, and why don't you write Luke, and I'll write... These were years apart, written by many different circumstances, right? Mark was actually written by John Mark and Peter collaborating together. John, written by John. Matthew, written by Matthew, otherwise known as Levi. Luke writes years later, when he's working with Paul, by going through and interviewing everyone for firsthand information. I hear that you were at the tomb. What do you recall about the circumstances? And he records everything according to how they relate it to him. Confirmation through the corroboration. Very important, very significant. <clears throat> so Jesus is in here. He's risen. Let me show you where he was. Go quickly and tell his disciples. That is very significant. We'll talk a little bit more about it. But these women who have come to see this are told to go and tell the disciples he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. In other words, this is my job. And if any failure occurs from this point forward, it's now on your shoulders. I came here. I've rolled the stone out of the way. I've relayed the message to you. And I've told you what it is that you have to do. Take that to heart. <clears throat> You're here this morning. There was a time, probably, in your life where if people told you, you know, Easter morning, you're going to be sitting in church, intently listening to some pastor teach you the Bible. You probably would have thrown your head back and laughed. There was probably a time in your life where the thought that you would be a Christian and the thought that you would be receiving this message would have seemed foolish. The obstacles have been moved out of the way. You are sitting here right now. I'm doing my job. And I am commissioning you to take this message and go share it with the world. Make sure you do your end of the deal, right? That we take what we have learned inside these halls and we share it with the world that is around us. That is literally what this angel is saying. Hey, I've done my job. Make sure you do yours. What would have happened if these women had not taken the message? You say, of course they're going to take the message, Will. No, no, no. We'll talk a little bit more about how women were so disrespected in this culture that they might have even just said, no one's going to listen to me, and not delivered the message. It's significant that this angel is charging them with this. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. It's so interesting. In Luke chapter 24, verse 11, that it is recorded that when these women came and shared their message with the disciples, their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. They didn't believe them. Women were largely marginalized inside this culture at this time. Their testimony was so distrusted that they were not even allowed to testify in court. If some horrible crime had occurred, and they're asking everyone, what went on here? And they say, well, you'll have to ask this woman. She was the only witness. They're like, oh, that's really unfortunate. And they wouldn't even bother asking her because she cannot testify 
in the circumstances. Listen, it's significant, right? I'm not just trying to throw something out there to catch your interest. It's very significant <coughs> for you and I today. <clears throat> I would ask you to put your bookmark where you are in Matthew and turn with me to Luke chapter 2 <clears throat> and look at verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. This is the birth of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10 of Luke chapter 2, it says, The angels appeared and they said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Drop down to verse 15. So it was when the angel had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known, this is the shepherds, the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Okay. You've got the greatest invention ever created in the whole world. You've designed it. You've built it. And you now need to get the word out that you have this product and it's for everyone in the world. Everyone's going to need it. Everyone's going to want it. And you hunt around for how you're going to market and distribute and make known this product. And you finally come to a brilliant conclusion. <clears throat> you're going to go to the local traveling country fair and hire all the carnies that assemble those rickety rides we all get on and those are going to be your marketing engineers you know the guys that are all tattooed up and playing acdc and whizzing your kid around in a circle <clears throat> that's who you're going to use to spread the good news of your needed thing Jesus Christ was just born and he appeared to shepherds, and that's exactly the parallel. Nobody trusted shepherds. When the shepherds came into town, they brought the kids in out of the yard, shut the door, locked the chariot, made sure everything was tightly secure. The Lord chooses shepherds. He could have appeared, right, to anyone. He could have sent these angels to anyone. He sends them to women. He sends them to the untrusted offcast of society and says, now that I've told you the message, you make sure to go tell other people. Once again, not trying to be injurious to you here, but here we sit receiving the message of the gospel. Make sure you don't tuck it away saying, well, I'm no Billy Graham. You know, there are other people who, you know, are more responsible for getting out in the public's eye and spreading this gospel. No, 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 no. This is who the Lord uses. Men and women like us sitting in this room. And maybe there are a couple of us who are wealthy and educated and noble. But for most of us, right? I mean, do we want to talk about your criminal record right here in front of everybody, really? No, not me either, right? But the Lord has chosen us to be his messengers. I'll give you another indicator in regard to this. John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, Jesus has gone into a hated community and spoken to a woman at the well, right? John chapter 4, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
Listen, <clears throat> that is the very first person that Jesus Christ revealed directly to them that he was the Messiah. Others suspect it, right? <clears throat> Others say things that might confirm it, but he doesn't give them a direct answer. She is a Gentile from an especially hated community, and she is a woman. This makes her testimony completely null and void. <clears throat> if you think, well, maybe that was his intention. In each one of these situations, keep things quiet, keep things tamped down, right? That's not what she does. She goes right back into town. <clears throat> she tells everybody in the town about her conversation with Jesus, about his miraculous work in her conversation with him. They all come out to see and experience Jesus as the Messiah. If you're not picking up the understanding, the Lord goes to humble people, delivers his message, and leaves it with us to be responsible about spreading that message. The reason he does that is it's much easier to receive that message from the humble. Okay, If you get that message from the wealthy, educated elite, you can left, be left assessing yourself saying, well, this message is more for them than it is for me. This message is for everyone. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ is for everyone. A summary of this mindset, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 27, Paul said, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Meaning, at no point can we say, of course the Lord chose me. <laughs> Look at me after all. I'm amazing. I'm wonderful. We don't get to say that, right? Honesty will compel us to the point where we say, I'm not worthy of receiving this message, little own translating this message to anyone else. You know, bringing this message to someone in order that they would be saved. Well, one of the women from the church years ago got me a shirt. It was one of my favorite shirts. I don't know where it is now. And it just said big red letters right across the chest, loser. Underneath it was the passage from Luke that said he would lose his life, would gain it. If we would lose our lives for Jesus Christ, Larry Norman, considered the grandfather of modern Christian music, wrote a song years ago called Jesus is for Losers. And he truly is. Where, wherever your struggle has been in life, Jesus Christ will meet you there and he will make you his servant, make you his messenger, make you his minister. Make sure that you receive it and you deliver it. Verse 20 or verse 9 of Luke. Uh, I'm all confused where I am now. I'm in Matthew. Are you back there with me? Matthew chapter 28, verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, Jesus uh, met them saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, for this next section, you need to remember Matthew chapter 27, verse 66, regarding the Roman guard that was put at this tomb. So they've gotten the message. And they're going to go meet Jesus in Galilee, and we'll see that in a moment. But we shift gears back to the Roman guard, verse 11 of Matthew chapter 28. Now, now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city. And this is part of the reason that I think that the whole stone rolled away, angel on the stone, earthquake, 
guards falling down was probably seen, experienced to some degree by the two Marys that originally went to the tomb. Uh, they have this information that now they go back into town. Another element within this that gives us a particular insight is the fact that this is written by Matthew. Now, Matthew was a tax collector, which means he was an employee of Rome. He has very particular connections to the authorities of Rome, and we hear from him very significant circumstances from the inside of Roman politics and Roman government that we don't get from anyone else. You know, Pilate's wife has a dream, sends message, don't have anything to do with Jesus Christ. How does he know that? Is he like friends of Pilate's wife? There's some inside connections. There, there is some information flowing out of Rome into Matthew's mind, into his understanding that gets recorded for us here. He's a Levite, which also seems to give us some connection to the priesthood. What a strange, interesting individual. Now, if you're looking at your life and thinking, I should have been something special, but then I got connected to some really rotten things. Now I have surrendered my life to Christ. You never know how something special connected to something rotten might serve the Lord. Matthew, tax collector, Levite, here writing to us this morning. <coughs> Forgive me. <coughs> While they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city. reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. <coughs> when they had assembled with the elders, consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. <coughs> not a small paycheck, not a little payoff, not something that would just appease them, gave them a large sum of money that they would be quiet, saying, uh, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. Sounds like a reasonable explanation. Jesus has disappeared from the tomb. Got to have some kind of explanation. Tell everybody that while you slept, uh, you went. Oh, great. Oh, these will make me sneeze. This will be a nice combination right here. <clears throat> We're committed to these. This is where we're going right now. <clears throat> so, when people ask you, when it comes up, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him <clears throat> and make you secure. And if you're thinking, yeah... I've dealt with things like this. I've been involved with things like this. Probably not. Okay. You may want to turn, but at least listen to Acts chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. This is well after Jesus Christ's ascension into heaven. The Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles. The church has grown magnificently. And now... The Jews are especially offended with Christianity. Rome has joined into the hatred, the attack, and the fight. And they've put to death James, not Jesus' half-brother, but James, the brother of John. That pleases the Jewish community, and particularly the religious leadership, so much that Rome captures Peter, and now they're about to put Peter to death. In prison, Peter is awakened by an angel who sets him free out of his shackles and leads him out of the prison and just sets him free on the streets. The guards who were guarding Peter, right, probably chained to him, right? 
now have to answer <clears throat> for that failure. <clears throat> Acts chapter 12, verse 18, Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and then commanded that they should be put to death with their own sword. That was the Roman punishment for failure of duty. If you were assigned a job and you failed at it, you would be put to death. The motivation behind this is if you've been sent to guard the tomb or any other circumstances and now trouble shows up, you're going to fight like your life depends upon it because it does. If you fail in that moment, they're going to put you on your knees, bound with cords. They're going to take your own sword, one of the two you have as a Roman soldier, the short 18-inch sword, and they're going to place it on the back of your neck, and they're just going to plunge it straight through your body. You're not going to survive. So you're going to fight for all your worth. Two things. They failed at their duty. If word comes to the governor, we'll make sure that you are secure. Listen to how much these religious men know the miracle of Jesus' resurrection has taken place. This is, this is nothing short of them having a complete knowledge of the miracle that has taken place and willfully working against it. When you see people in our culture doing things that are this wicked, and you think, well, maybe they just don't know. No, no, they know full well. Romans tells us they know full well, right? And that they suppress the truth with their wickedness. I'll give you another example. I've had to deal with it in the past two weeks. Unborn children. Just a few years ago, I've shared this with you many times. There was a man incarcerated in a county jail here in the state of Maine. He was a drug addict filled with rage and paranoia, convinced that his pregnant girlfriend was now cheating on him. He began to ask other inmates in the jail if they knew anyone that would go kill her for money. Some of the inmates told the administration of the jail, the sheriff's department sent a detective in undercover as though he were an inmate himself. And as his roommate told him, oh, well, you know, I'm a hit man for hire. The guy paid him $10,000 to go kill his pregnant girlfriend. Obviously, he did not do that, and they arrested that inmate, and they charged him for commissioning two murders. The murder of the mother and the murder of the unborn child. They prosecuted him and added time to his sentence. She, at the exact same time, could have gone to an abortion clinic and killed that child and had no repercussions. This week... I'm having to deal, last week, I'm having to deal with a mother who's pregnant, who's using heroin. And I contact the authorities and say, what do I do? And they tell me flatly, there's nothing you can do. Because that unborn child is her body. It's not a separate life. It's her body. So she can do with her body what she wants. This is the medical community telling me that. I say, what about DHS? Couldn't I tell that? And they're like, no. No, because, because they don't view it as her using drugs, committing a crime, or even being an addict. She has a disease, and we can't punish her for that. If anyone outside of her body harms that child, they will be prosecuted for harming a life, ending a life. Inside her choice... The politicians who are making those decisions, the judges who are handing down those decisions, know how wicked what they are doing is, and they are doing it anyway. 
This is the culture we live in. You read this and think, oh, come on, that's crazy. They would know they're doing it right now, right in front of us. Remember that the next time you put your pen on that voting ballot. And who it is that's on the other end of receiving your vote. We need to be considerate of what the Lord would have us to do. I've got three more hours, so we really got to hurry here. Verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Guess what? Until this day. Even to today, that lie is still commonly reported. No, Jesus, resurrection, the Bible. They stole his body. He fainted on the cross. He wasn't really dead. All kinds of lying explanations are still perpetuated by the enemies of the gospel to this day. And they do it with big money backing. They gave them great sums of money. They produced an amazing documentary for Nova, for Discovery, for National Geographic that renounce our Lord's resurrection and promote lies about his resurrection. Make no mistake, it's still going on. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed them. This is generally thought of as Mount Tabor, but there's no way to be certain of this. What is striking is the disciples knew where to meet him. It had been prearranged, and they had all experienced him enough to know, yep, that's where he's going to be at. And they went and they met him there. I would turn that into a question for you. Do you know where to meet the Lord today? Right? I can tell you where to meet the Lord if you don't know. It's in James chapter 4. It begins at verse 5. By saying, or do you not think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. The Lord wants you, is what that is saying. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud. I can't get near God. I've tried to pray. He doesn't listen. That's not true. Maybe your pride is keeping you from him. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, here's your answer, how to meet Jesus. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It also has conditions. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify you, your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. God is findable that's you know your technical term for the morning right ask knock seek you will receive you will find he will open all of those statements when we read them in the scriptures say keep knocking keep asking keep seeking oh i knocked one time he didn't open i asked one time I read the Bible, people will say. That one drives me crazy. <clears throat> you know, like it was a Hardy Boy novel or something. I read the Bible. Are you kidding? This is the Word of God. Breathed by His Holy Spirit onto the pages. Consider. Back to Matthew. We'll round this out. Verse 17 of chapter 28. When they saw Him... They worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, I want you to notice this. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What authority? Oh, authority over demons. Authority over creation. Authority over storms. Authority over food and fish and leprosy. And no, not what he's talking about at all. You want to know what his authority is? One word in the very next verse. Go. That's the authority he's talking about. To you and to me and to his disciples. Go. 
therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. That's where he's pouring all of his authority in that moment, is on the command that you and I go and make disciples of all the nations. All authority has been given to me to tell you to go and make disciples. That's what he's saying. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to jump quickly over to Matthew chapter 8 and read you a few verses. I'm going to finish this up quick. Stay with me. It's Resurrection Sunday. You can give me a few extra minutes, okay? Matthew chapter 8, verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority. Mm, interesting parallel. Having soldiers under me, I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. Listen, you've got to do something pretty darn spectacular to make God marvel. Stop God in his tracks to where he's going to go, wow. You're going to do something pretty spectacular to pull that off. The God who said, you know what, we need light, and it just appeared. Let's make man, and he appeared. Let's make all of the creeping things, and they appeared. And he sees this centurion and goes, my goodness, that's amazing. He stops everyone. He marveled at what he experienced in the moment and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. The implication is not even in all of Israel. I've never seen anything like that. Someone who understands God's authority in his own life. Do we understand God's authority in our life this morning? The one that's saying to you, go and make disciples. Are you making disciples? Are you doing that with your life and your resources? Make sure that you are. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And if you go like, oh man, the commandments and the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and wow, all of his commandments. How am I going to teach people to obey all of his commandments? Jesus made it very simple for us stupid people, okay? Those shepherds, these women, these dumb fishermen, right? He made it simple for us. Teach them to observe all the things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That means this morning. The summary comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, where it says, Teacher... Which are the great commandments? What, excuse me. Which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind." This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it: "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Are you doing that? If you said yes, I would say think again. This is our Lord's commandment. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, and his commandment to us is go and teach people to be my disciples. How do you teach someone to be a disciple? You teach them those two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And if they do that, they will by nature love their neighbor as themselves. You can't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and not love your neighbor as yourself. So it comes down to that one commandment. And the second one will follow. We need to be obedient to those two commandments first if we're going to teach anyone else. Isn't it annoying when somebody tells you, right, do as I say, not as I do? Bugs the stuffing out of us. We need to be serious students of Jesus Christ. Disciplined followers of Jesus Christ. 
who love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and then take that message to the world around us. Go is the commandment from our risen Lord this morning. Make disciples. That's why I started this whole message with the Pocket Testament League has multiple copies out front. Start by picking one up with the intention that you're going to give it to someone. Share the gospel with them and lead them to Christ. Inside that, you have all the information to contact the Pocket Testament League and get 30 of them sent to you so that you'll have one every single day of the month to give to someone else. I would say to you, especially in this fallen, sick, twisted world we're living in right now, we need to be serious about obeying the one who has been given all authority on heaven and earth to go and make disciples of all men. We need to be very serious about that. Converting people to being children of God. What's the message of the resurrection? It isn't just so we can sit here and examine all the details and come to the conclusion, yes, I believe it. Jesus is risen from the dead. It's so that we can move to action and obey his commandment to make disciples. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us, Lord. Help us to follow you. Help us to accomplish your will. We have to admit, Lord, we have our own will. Unfortunately, very often it doesn't line up with your will. We recognize your goodness. We recognize your rightness. Help us to submit to your authority, to be obedient to you, and to perform the work that you've commanded us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.